Well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> That's quite an honor to uh, <laughs> be able to play that part in somebody's <laughs> life. Um, so as you may have guessed, this morning we're going to uh, talk a little bit about the gospel. Uh, you probably guessed that because of the prompt you were given. So wherever you wrote that down, whether it was on your phone or a piece of paper, hang on to that, and uh, we will come back to that a little bit later this morning. Uh, but before we do that, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to uh, the first chapter of Colossians. And our scripture, our passage this morning uh, that we will be looking at is 24 through 27. So I'm going to give it a read here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. So uh, a little bit of context uh, just about this specific passage that we're looking at. Uh, the title in my Bible, uh, when I read it, says Paul's ministry to the church. How many uh, people's Bibles say something along those lines? Okay. That's actually a pretty good title for what's going on uh, in this uh, section of Scripture. Paul is making an appeal to the work and devotion for the cause of Christ to a group of people, the church in Colossae, which he has never met. So he's kind of describing what his ministry is really trying to do, trying to accomplish why he is the person he is and why he's doing the things he's doing. And he begins by speaking to the suffering that he has willingly endured. So verse 24, although it can be a little tricky, it says this, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, if you just read it, and don't uh, give too much thinking of it, it sounds almost as if Paul is concluding that Christ's atonement was left unfinished or that his work, Paul's work, is somehow finalizing this defeat of sin because Christ's death and resurrection was lacking. But in no way is Paul actually making this conclusion. Rather, he's saying that Christ has already suffered and with it brought in a new age where an extension of similar suffering will be placed upon those followers. So the work of Christ fully accomplishes everything, but now in prison, which is where Paul is writing from, he rejoices to take part in this extension of the suffering, knowing that it's the natural outcome for uh, those who choose to follow Christ. That if you are to be a disciple, there will be suffering. And Paul is saying, I rejoice in the fact that now I am carrying on in the same way that Christ suffered. Now I suffer for the church. He says, as a minister according to God's call, Paul highlights his responsibility and ongoing commitment to bring this message to the church. And he underscores it by the suffering that he is willing to endure. This is a tool, a rhetorical tool that Paul uses throughout his writing. There's a couple of verses up here. So 2 Timothy, I'm not going to read these, but you can take a photo. 2 Timothy, uh, Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians 11 has a long, long discourse. This is all about Paul's suffering that he's willing to endure 
for the sake of this message that he is bringing. And all the suffering that he details in this passage and the others that have listed and the ones uh, throughout the New Testament is for the singular reason of to make the Word of God fully known. Now, in this context, word is small w word, so it does not mean specifically Jesus, as we would have seen uh, in uh, our uh, early Genesis passages when we talk about the word of God. But in this scripture, it means an account that one gives by word of mouth. So it's a message. The word he's speaking to is the message of God, and it's what Paul is committed to preaching. He refers to it as a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. This is a very Jewish way or a Jewish understanding of speaking to this message. This idea of mystery does not mean that God is trying to keep secrets from people, but rather is appealing to a people that have waited for a time unknown when God would move in history and provide the promised Messiah. It was a mystery to those who had waited for the Messiah when God would act. When would this Messiah become a reality? And Paul is saying it's here and it's now. Now, in our context, we speak about this word, this message that Paul is making. We speak about it often as the gospel. The gospel message is what Paul feels he is a minister of, and it's this responsibility and the commitment that he has made to bring the gospel to the church throughout this New Testament world. Now, the gospel is an interesting concept in the Christian world because we speak a lot about the gospel. We read the gospels, right? We have gospel choirs. We go to gospel-centered churches. There is something called the Gospel Project. There are groups called the Gospel Coalition. We preach the gospel and even sometimes use words, as the quote uh, has been often said. And then we also sometimes leave churches that don't preach the gospel with the right words. The gospel is something that we talk a lot about. In fact, I've actually heard it say that the gospel is simple, but if it is as simple and as people say it is, then I wonder why oftentimes we don't all agree as to what it is. So right now, pull out that piece of paper that you wrote something down or your phone, and I want you to turn to somebody around you, and I want you to share what you wrote, okay? Now, this is not to highlight who was wrong or who was right. This is simply an exercise to see how connected we are on this idea of what the gospel actually is. So take that out, turn to somebody next to you, and share what you wrote. All right, let's let's bring it back here. Now, my guess is that you found that what you wrote down was maybe different, maybe just in nuance or maybe in entire content of what the person that you shared with wrote down, okay? Because the scripture does not provide an exact and conclusive definition of the gospel, I think we have to admit that our experience, that our tradition 
might have influenced our definitions, our personal definitions to some degree. Okay? Uh, if you are in the aisle side uh, right here uh, or close to the aisle, there is probably a little envelope in that thing in the pew in front of you. I want you to grab that. Yep. You can open that up. And you, uh, there's not going to be one for everybody in there, but you can begin to kind of distribute those down the aisle. So maybe uh, think about one per family. If you are upstairs, I apologize. We do not have that for you. <clears throat> now, you can look at it, uh, but you've got to look at it without talking to your neighbor. And here is uh, why I share that. Because the first time that I really encountered this idea of the gospel was in high school. And I was, uh, let's see, I would have been 16 years old, and I was given something similar to what you might hold in your hand right now. Uh, in high school, I was what people called a heathen, right? And some of my really good-intentioned Christian classmates thought that I should encounter the gospel and uh, decided that the best way that I encountered the gospel was by way of handing me a track, something similar to what you have in your hand right now. Now, uh, the one that I gave you this morning is, in fact, priceless because it is a ticket to heaven, right? <clears throat> The one uh, that I opened, I can't exactly remember what was the uh, kind of cliche or funny little thing it had on the cover, but I do remember opening it and reading something like this, that God loved me and created me to know him personally, but that unfortunately I was sinful and separated from God and couldn't in fact know him personally or experience his love and was therefore destined to eternal separation or hell. Yet, Jesus Christ was sent on my behalf to pay the price for my sin through his blood shed on the cross and that I could know God personally and experience God love, God's love because of this act if and only if I individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and that if I didn't, I would spend eternity in hell. Just a little light read as a 16-year-old kid in high school. Now, these four biblical ideas are more commonly known as the four spiritual laws, and they form the substance of most tracts that I'm guessing we have seen in this room. I'm also concluding that much of our current church understanding of what the gospel actually is is derived from this idea these four spiritual laws. But let me argue that if this is the gospel, then it's actually more akin to a method of persuasion. It's a series of deeply theological and mind-blowing statements set in a logical sequence to persuade someone to believe something different than before. This is, in fact, why I think people leave churches when they say they don't preach the gospel. What they really mean is that they leave a Sunday morning service without being provided an easily followable formula 
where someone might be persuaded to follow something different. Now, I'm not ridiculing the four spiritual laws, yet if you know me, you know that I am a little bit. <clears throat> but I do have to be honest and say, this is how I became a Christian. Not on that day when I was 16 and given a track, but about a year later at a high school young life camp through this very same set of four spiritual laws yet expanded upon over the day or over five days of talks, this strategic method of persuasion convinced me that there was a different way to live, that there was a different way to be. I was told that I was created and loved, but that I was sinful and detestable to God, but that Christ died for me on the cross and that now God could accept me once again if I chose to be in relationship with him. And I can remember on that last evening of camp, I stood up and trusted Christ, hearing this message, these four spiritual laws, standing up and trusting Christ in that moment. And my life has never been the same. It was dramatic, it was beautiful, and it's crazy to me that as a 17-year-old, you could make a decision that shapes your life for the rest of your life. The, the greatest decision I have and or will ever, ever make, I made when I was 17. But when our understanding of the gospel is limited to a method of persuasion or a set of statements contained in a little pamphlet like that, there's a danger that it might not actually change us. John Calvin famously says this, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates the inner recesses of the heart. So if we can agree to what Calvin says, then let's explore the topic this morning, the topic of the gospel. I'm not going to give you a definition Rather, I'm going to try to give you two different ways of thinking about the gospel that I have found to be incredibly helpful as I have had to reimagine my faith over the last 15 years. So here's the first one. <clears throat> the gospel is a living reality more than a set of historical events. The gospel is a living reality more than a set of historical events events. So what if we understood the gospel as a person rather than a series of historical events that secure a future for us? One of the most clear places Paul speaks about the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. He says this, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What, <clears throat> what you notice is Paul states the historical events, but then attaches them to the ideas of being saved and that we are to hold fast to the truth. These are active descriptors that insinuate that the gospel is not static, but ongoing, but living. The gospel for Paul is the holistic and living person of Christ. 
In Greek, the gospel literally means good news. And for Paul, the good news isn't that something happened a long time ago. The good news is that something is happening here and now. Yes, the historical event of the cross is the defeat of sin and the resurrection is the conquering of death. But if we take a look back at our Colossians passage, Paul shows his hand about the good news when he says in verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the, Gentile are the, the Gentiles are the riches, the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Think about that, Christ in you. This is the good news. It's not Christ next to you or Christ waiting for you or Christ when you were mature enough or Christ excited to see you in heaven. It's not Christ that did something a long time ago for you and it's certainly not Christ only after you mentally assent to a set of theological statements and recite a specific prayer. It's Christ taking up your life now. It's the fullness of God's love the fullness of God's mercy, the fullness of God's grace, the dwelling of the risen Lord in our lives here and now. This was the good news for Paul. This is what Paul is speaking to the church in Colossae. He's saying, I bring a message to you. I bring the gospel to you. And the gospel is that Christ is living and active in your lives now. This is the good news for all. It's a gospel that possesses the whole soul, as Calvin would say. Many of my friends that I stood with at camp have since lost or renounced their faith. I'd say probably 75% of them. I wonder and have wondered, had they been told the good news was the fullness of Jesus dwelling with them instead of a description of events that happened for them, if things would be different? Here's my second way that I think we could understand the gospel. Similar, but also different than the first. What if the gospel was a pilgrimage rather than an endpoint? What if the goal of the gospel was not to get us somewhere, but to shape how we lived on the way? If the gospel is simply a means to get you to your desired end, then I think we missed all that Christ has for us now. I believe the gospel in this way is better understood as a pilgrimage. It's not solely about a destination. It's not just ensuring ultimately where we will land. Because if we theologically believe Paul's conclusion that Christ is in you, if we think that's a true statement and a fixed reality for our lives, then it should change everything about our lives, not just where we hope we'll go in the future. Minimizing <clears throat> the gospel to your ticket to heaven creates a culture of escapism. It creates a people more concerned about who is in and who is out. It values security above love and certainty above growth. 
In order to fix their gaze on the end point, these types of people often overlook everything and everyone around them. If the gospel is reduced to what God did so that you could be insured where you end up, then I think it becomes very challenging to find meaning and purpose in life now. This is what I think my friends struggled with as they got home from camp and began to live life. How many people have heard of the site eBay? Good. That was like an easy one where everybody should raise their hands. It kind of reconnects speaker and audience again in a good way. Uh, My sophomore year in college, I lived with four other guys in an apartment just off Western's campus in Bellingham. We tried to have a Sunday house meeting once a week where important things were to be discussed. Typically, all we did was play foosball and argue about whose turn it was to do the dishes. But on this particular day, two of my housemates called a special Tuesday meeting, which did not happen all that often. Under the guise of something incredibly important and time-sensitive, we arranged for a time around class and work schedules where we could all meet in the living room. And in serious and hushed tones, Nick and Bryce had confessed that they had recently been spending a lot of time on the internet, and in particular on one specific site. Not fully knowing where this was going, but assuming they worst, they revealed the name of the site to be eBay. In particular, a marketplace for used motorcycles. They then went into a very sound and well-crafted line of argumentation that they had believed that we needed to purchase a house motorcycle. (laughs) And that if we could each dig deep with $150, that we could own a 1985 Virago. I think there's a picture of it. The only catch was that it was 1,200 miles away at a dealership in L.A. With midterms on Friday, decisions needed to be made, and they needed to be made quick. So after some discussion, we all agreed that our only option was to purchase the bike. (laughs) This tells you how early in eBay it was. We purchased the bike uh, through the site, but then agreed to bring $650 cash and have it to this person in LA, this guy in LA, by Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Otherwise, he could sell the bike to whoever was next in line. So I was the only person with a truck. I volunteered to drive. I took an additional driver with me, my good friend Ross. We packed 24, a 24 pack of Diet Dr. Pepper, a box of Frutio fruit snacks, and a five pound bag of pretzels. We left Wednesday morning, stopping only for gas and an In-N-Out burger in L.A., and we arrived in L.A. 19 hours later, 30 minutes before 10 a.m. We purchased the bike, loaded it onto the truck, and began driving back home, got into Bellingham at 6 a.m. on Friday morning. We rode into Bellingham with my friend Ross sitting on the bike in the back of my truck. (laughs) and drove around the block, honking incessantly, waking up all of our neighbors. And we were greeted with incredible fanfare. (laughs) Now, 
I'd like to share that the motorcycle was a place where we expanded our knowledge of mechanics or that it was a thing that really brought great depth and shared experience to our house of roommates or that maybe it was a tool that we used for gutsy ministry into biker gangs in Bellingham. <laughs> but to be totally transparent, the bike worked for about 10 total minutes on that Friday morning. We got three trips around the block on the motorcycle, and then it would never start again. <laughs> and so after the year of living in that apartment, we left the motorcycle on the front lawn, kind of as a housewarming gift to the next renters. <clears throat> and it's been passed on and sold into obscurity, and we have not seen it since 2001. Now, if the goal was to secure and use a motorcycle, then this would be considered an absolute failure. And although we may have thought in the moment that that's what it was all about, now almost 20 years later, the journey, the story of the Virago has become far more important to us, whether or not the bike ever actually worked. The destination of owning and using a motorcycle was only part of the journey, and dare I say, not even the important part of the journey. I think the same is true for the gospel. It's not an endpoint. It's not a formula to convince us to believe a certain set of things that ultimately secures our destiny, because if that's all it is, then I'm not so sure I'm interested. The gospel is about transformation. The gospel is about sanctification. It's about the entirety of Christ's life and teaching. N.T. Wright says the gospel is not a plan of salvation. The gospel is not then a system of how people get saved. It's the announcement of the gospel result uh, the announcement of the gospel results in people getting saved, but the gospel itself, strictly speaking, is a narrative proclamation of King Jesus. Or to put it yet more compactly, Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, is Lord. The gospel is not just our ticket to heaven, right? It's a pilgrimage. And in a pilgrimage, the journey is equally important to the destination. The same is true for the gospel. We don't just look to what Calvary got us, but rather follow the way of Jesus, allowing and expecting our lives to be shaped as we follow. New Community believes to be gospel-centered, to be a gospel-preaching church, then we have to wrestle with and embody all aspects of the person of Christ even those that force us to make tough decisions on how we live and how we act. On a pilgrimage, this means that every time he speaks against empire or challenges the religious system or speaks to how money should be handled or how people should be a people of peace, each of those moments are important and should transform us. And they are just as much the gospel as his redeeming death and resurrection. The 19th century Scottish Baptist preacher Alexander McLaren remarked, the gospel is not a mere message of deliverance, but a canon of conduct. It is not a theology to be accepted, 
but it is ethics to be lived. It is not to be believed only, but is to be taken into life as a guide. These are two different ways to think about the gospel. Two ways in addition to maybe this way. The gospel is the good news, and the good news, I do not believe, can be contained in a pamphlet. The good news is the living Christ dwelling in you and in me. It's not just what he did on the cross, but the full person, the full work of Jesus. The good news is that we don't have to wait until we die to experience all that Christ has for us, but that we've been invited on a pilgrimage, meaning that how we live here and now is just as important as the prayer that you prayed years ago when you first trusted Christ. In John 17, in the final hours of his life during what we call the high priestly prayer, Jesus says this, says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In this prayer, Jesus exposes the reality that eternal life is not something we wait for. It's not something we sign up for and then bide time until we exit this earth. Eternal life is now. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing Christ. The gospel message is not about securing your place in heaven. The good news is that you can be a part of heaven here on earth. So new community, I implore you to live in such a way that your life speaks this truth into reality. I pray that we would not be a people that rests and waits for a time to come in the future, but a people that lives heaven on earth here and now.